and welcome to Solent Sessions, where we meet researchers in our faculty. This podcast is for anyone interested in research and the person behind the process. It's hosted by me, Dr Emma Mosley, and Dr Mark Turner, where we take it in turns to chat to faculty members to get to know them and their research. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the first episode of Solent Sessions. Um, we thought it might be quite fitting to actually give you a bit of a flavour what this podcast is going to be about and uh, actually learn a little bit more about your host. So today we are very lucky to be joined by one of the co-hosts of the podcast, Dr Mark Turner, who is a senior research fellow in sports sociology here in our faculty. So hi, Mark. Hi, Emma. Are you looking forward to our podcast journey together? It's a little bit daunting, if I'm honest, but um, yeah, a bit surreal, but um, we're, we're going to try and lead by example. Yeah, let's hope so. Uh, I'm sure you're going to do a fantastic job today for our first episode. Um, so we're going to start off with uh, this idea of who is the researcher. So how did you get to, to where you are now? Um, it's a great first question. Uh, I guess... I'm, well, I'm a first generation student um, from from a pretty working class um, area, which is Wigan. Uh, George Orwell famously visited Wigan, the road to Wigan Pier. Um, I guess I, I first, firstly, really, I turned down a, a full time youth contract with Wigan Athletic back a long time ago, back in the sort of mid. 1990s to go to college and I think that decision really whether it's a good decision or not I don't know people can make their own mind up but I've ended up uh working in education so I've, I've taken that route I think what I often say to students is you know students sometimes might miss a couple of lectures at university um what what, what I often say to them is um be open-minded to to the possibilities of one day being in class on a new module um, for the first time and it changing your life in some way because it inspires you in a way which perhaps other modules haven't before. So I was studying a sport course at university and I'd done some sports science modules in my first year and there's no criticism here of sports scientists but right, you know it was all it was all about performance you know performance enhancement and performance principles um, and then in my second year I got to study a, a sort of a couple of sociology modules and a philosophy module and it really was the philosophy module, actually. Um, and I guess a really inspirational lecturer who got me to think for the first time really about the, I guess, the meaning and the value of sport um, in a different way, as opposed to the sort of competitive performance um, principles, which we'd, we'd studied through the sports science modules. And really from that, I've never looked back. So then I went and did my dissertation in a in a, a sort of sport uh, sociolo- sociology um, topic on a top sport sociology topic, and then went to Brighton to do my um, postgraduate um, master's course, which specified in sports sociology. And then I ended up going back to to Edge Hill University, where I was a student, to become an associate lecturer, uh, and then got through sort of <laughs> thrown in at the deep end and was asked to lead three modules, um, and I guess learn the sort of took on an apprenticeship really yeah. Uh, yeah. and then and then ended up here at Solent 
um, in 2011. So I think that's like a, a quick uh, whistle stop tour of, of <laughs> how I've got to where I am. Yeah, that's great. And I think, um, you know, we really take for granted, don't we, those people that teach us how much they kind of shape the path that we're going to go on. And I know that I had a really similar experience to you in that there was one particular lecturer who I was just really inspired by. So it's really nice to hear, you know, that that you've also had that experience too. Um, so- I've got a feeling, Emma, I've got a feeling, Emma, that that might become a theme yeah. through, the, through the series as people talk and reflect on, you know, their own journey. Yeah, I think so. And I think it, it allows us as lecturers as well sometimes to kind of reflect about, you know, the influence that we have on our students as well. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's a really, really nice point. Um, okay, that, that's a really nice little uh, summary of your journey there. Um, but we also want to try and get to know our researchers uh, and our staff within the faculty on a more personal level as well. Um, so can you give us one fact that doesn't relate uh, to research, although you've already kind of dropped in you were your pre- previous Wigan athletic superstar. Um, so <laughs> can you give us any other facts? Yeah, I would say um, my friends who follow me on Instagram uh, are probably sick and tired of, of seeing um, the various piano video recordings which I often um, often put on there on my stories because I've been playing the piano since the age of um, the age of nine uh, was a, was classically trained and, and then developed a bit of an ear for music I've got this really weird um, I wouldn't call it an ability um, but I've got this weird thing where I can hear a piece of music on the radio and then sit and play it straight away and I know exactly what key it's in and it's it's a bit strange but yeah I've been playing the piano for a long time um so I think that's another fact whether it's interesting people um people can make their own mind up oh that's fab I played piano when I was uh when I was younger but um yeah I think I'd, I'd prefer to to run around <laughs> didn't have patience for it I don't think um okay that's great what a, what a brilliant fact I might have to follow you on Instagram now so I can get in on the piano yeah. action um okay so we're going to move on now to to more about like the what so what is your research about so firstly can you tell us what your research area is yeah, I was dreading that question because it's it, it's really difficult. You know, when you ask that question, what is your research area? Obviously, I guess I cross pollinate ideas from from different disciplines. Really, you know, I'm I'm a sociologist, um, so I'm interested in sports sociology. I, I'm really interested in social change and how social change comes about, how it happens across across time. Um, so there's a there's a temporal dimension to my research um but i'm also um i guess i I cross pollinate ideas from sociology but also social movement studies because i'm really that's really what i'm um i'm interested in i'm interested in what are social movements um how do they emerge in the way they do when they do um and how do they actually mobilize um using different tactics and networks across time so i'm really interested in social movements in sport so uh, or social movements through sport. Yeah, just just for a complete novice like myself, can, can you tell me what a social movement is? Can you give me an example? Yeah, sure. So obviously the big social movements of most of the 20th century, civil rights movement, various feminist uh, movements, uh, are what might obviously come to mind, or the pro-democracy movements. Um, I, I guess, you know, I was defining it. You'd say, it's, in a way, it's 
it's a group of people, sometimes individuals, but individuals who are networked together by social ties, and they come together to bring about some type of of change, I guess, positive change, and it might be a cultural change, it could be a political change or a social change. Uh, and, and usually those movements do mobilise, but they, mo- they mobilise across a ground which is always shifting. So, um, you know, th- there's a big high-profile um, movement at the moment, which you might have, uh, have, have heard about through the, through the sports press, uh, you know, the Marcus Rashford Yes. Uh, case. Really, you know, he, in, in what I'm, you know, Marcus Rashford is, is campaigning or is using his athlete status to campaign for, for, I guess, to try and, um, alleviate child poverty effectively. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but, but what, what we would be interested in as a social movement, uh, researcher would be interested in, in how Rashford is part of a wider movement. So Marcus Rashford does not exist as independently. Uh, as one person, he will be networked uh, with, with other organisations, and it's the networks themselves which are really important to to help mobilise and put pressure politically on on the on the government. So, yeah, that's what I'm interested in. Uh, I'll t- obviously, I'm, pr- I'm probably going to be talking about my actual research uh, shortly, but I guess, yeah, social movements, activism. Um, is probably the the research area if I had to sort of conceptualise it. Yeah, that that sounds really in, interesting. And you know, we often kind of see sport as this almost like a metaphor for life, a vehicle for change. Um, and we see a lot of those changes coming from um, you know these these sporting stars that we look up to. Um, but actually, I hadn't really thought about it in that sense that they can kind of start this change and then put pressure on the government. And that's, you know, that's like a, a platform for them to do so. So that's really interesting. So um, c- can you tell us what your work uh, is about within this particular area? Yeah, so so my background is football. Um, so I'm sorry if anyone's listening to this who doesn't like football. I won't talk about football forever. <laughs> but yeah, football really is a space or a context. Uh, in which my research um, is applied. And um, I, I've been researching uh, for, for about six years. Um, I, I finished my PhD re- uh, research and I started to publish some 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 um, some papers from that. Um, and some people may be aware of this case. It's a pretty high-profile case in, in English football. Um, if you went to a football game during the 20th century, um, there's a very strong possibility you you would stand at the game um and on on a, on a traditional terrace mm. um so that really was a ritual which fans consumed for for pretty much a hundred years um and then we had the hillsborough stadium disaster in in nineteen eighty nine the tragic um hillsborough stadium disaster uh obviously we know ninety six Liverpool fans lost their life as a result of a human crush, really, on the terraces. I'm not going to go into the causes of the, the, the disaster. What we do know is that there was a there was a move uh, before the Hillsborough Stadium disaster by by the UK government to to transform really the the way in which football was going to be consumed um, as as we moved into the 1990s. And one of the big catalysts for that was to change the traditional standing terraces to become all seated areas. Mm-hmm. So the Hillsborough Stadium disaster in the end became the, I guess, the mechanism for the government to, to achieve that. So since 1994, football games in the top two divisions in English football, the Premier League and the Championship, have been played in all-seated stadia. So I'm not here to argue whether that's 
that's a good thing or not. Obviously, um, more families um, go to games now as, as a result. Um, it's more inclusive. But what we do know is um, Lord Taylor, who who uh, was commissioned by the government to report on the causes of Hillsborough and to make recommendations, he suggested that fans would, over time, become accustomed and educated to sitting. Now, if you go to a rugby game or a cricket game, you, you can go and you can support um, your, your team in ways which are not over-regulated or over-constrained. You can also drink alcohol as well. But um, if you go to a football game, certainly in the Premier League or the Championship, the games are played in all-seated stadiums, but there are thousands of fans standing up in them. Mm. So Taylor was wrong, really, um, in that fans would become educated. In fact... Fans have been mobilising the social movement for 30 years. And that's what I've been really talking about in my research. So fans have not um, have not accepted this um, and have built a movement. And the movement is, is, is known as safe standing. So it, it, fans have come together, uh, I guess, through their own networks, have worked together, fans of rival clubs, to, as I said, over a long time campaign, to, to uh, reintroduce or, leg, uh, or sort of um, legitimise standing as, a, as, a, as an actual form of, of spectatorship. Now, I won't have time today to go into all of how that's been achieved, yeah. um, but I think it's interesting now because the UK government have, for the first time, just before COVID, um, have pledged, I mean, all three main political parties at the last election in 2019 have now pledged to introduce safe standing. So there's, we're sort of standing now on the, the shoulder of a possible policy change in, in English football as a result, really, of, I guess, some structural changes, but, you know, it's not just the fans, but I think the movement has been affected to some extent in sustaining itself um, again, against what has been a really powerful uh, post-Hillsborough discourse. So, you know, for 20 years, if you said anything about standing or, you know, or or, um, or terracing, yeah. you know, people would just say Hillsborough, Hillsborough. And you can understand that emotively. Um, but standing did not cause Hillsborough. Mm. That was not the reason why Hillsborough happened. So fans have been standing up. They've, they've said they've built this social movement and... Um, it's become quite a technical movement now, and, and what they're actually campaigning for is a particular type of, of standing known as, as rail seating. Yeah, this is what I was going to ask you actually. Like, so what's you know, because obviously they, they stand up even though they have a seat. So, what's the kind of new safe standing that, that they're going to introduce as a result? Well, well, I think the first thing to say is safe standing as a name for a movement is not very good because it implies. The thing, what you're actually campaigning for is in some way unsafe. Yeah. <laughs> just to make it safe. But what they've done is um, some of the football fans who were um, campaigning for this back in the, the late 1990s, um, they, they had networks, transnational networks with, with fans in, German, in Germany, fans of Schalke and, and, and other German clubs. And obviously in Germany, those fans um, actively campaigned against all City Stadia um, after the Hillsborough disaster, and they did not become, um, they, they didn't implement all, all seated stadia. So what they've, what they've got is because the European games, the, the UEFA legislation is the same as in the Premier League, it's all seated and the FIFA international games are the same. 
what the German um, fans did with the clubs, they, they, they developed this idea of having a convertible seating standing model where in front of, if, where you're stood in the, on the ground, in front of you would be a, a, like a rail or a row uh, to prevent you from falling forwards if, if you, you know, there's a, because if you've got, if you've been to a game, yeah. And and you've you know teams celebrate when the fans are celebrating a goal, um, it's really unsafe because you know most of the fans are stood up yeah. and they just surge forward over these um, all seated uh, spaces. So yeah, this particular model rail seating is a convertible uh, seating standing model. Uh, so so it's um, it's a standing area for for the German Bundesliga games, but it's a, it becomes a seated area because the the seats are folded back for the for the uh, for the for the league games, but then they they put the seats forward for the for the European games. So in 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 English football, um, this this model um, is starting to be developed. Really, now clubs are installing these areas. But what's really interesting is because the legislation hasn't changed yet, uh, what what clubs are doing is they're effectively installing them, but they're installing them as seats, not as as standing areas. So they're trying to work within the parameters of the legislation. But what's going to happen is it's going to normalise rail seating in English football, mm. ready for there being a possible policy change. Or what they might do is clubs might say, actually, well, fans are stood up. They're going to continue to stand up. We can't police it. We're struggling to steward it. But we'll really allow them to stand up in these safer rail seated areas but what that might do is it might lead to a more, I guess, draconian policing possibly of fans standing in the other areas, which are still all seated. Because I think clubs are only installing a set, you know, a small number of these, um, of these rail seats. Yeah. Um, so does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it does. And my next question was going to be, um, you know, what, what pieces of research did you do to kind of find this out? Did you talk to fans or did you talk to, to the clubs themselves? Um, you know, how did you go about finding out this this kind of opinion yeah, around it? It's a good, a good, really good question. Um, yeah, but, well, there's there's a lot of research which is coming from this, which is going to um, go down the, I guess, the club route and the safety bodies route. So I'm going to be working um, on some new work, which is going to talk to clubs about this and the Premier League, and possibly some people within the Sports Ground Safety Authority. But because my research was an analysis of a social movement, I focused on, I guess, the social histories of football fans over 30 years. It was a huge piece of work. Um, so, yeah, I, I actually covered the data was collected um, across a 30-year time frame. Um, so I, I, there's a lot of archival research, which I, I looked at in terms of the fan the first national supporter organisation, which emerged in '85, and who those people were, and what their next networks were, and um, and also then um, I interviewed um, the actual activists themselves, who were who were the core members of the Safe Standing movement, and and also I guess I became part of the network as well. So becoming part of the network, um, I was uh, invited. I wasn't asked, but I was invited to. Uh, join the online forum um, space, which they use to regularly sort of discuss, you know, different tactics and different, you know, different approaches to what's going on. I was was invited to join that, so I, I did some online research as well. Yeah. Uh, so it was you know, multifaceted, really, as a research um, 
strategy. But yeah, really, I got to know the, the fans and I got to know the, the histories, really. And, and some of them who started all of this back in, as I said, the late 80s, early 90s, they're, they're still around. They had archives in their attic and they, they were really, um, really kind in, in offering me access to that. So, yeah, it's a, I'm knackered just thinking about it, to be honest. <laughs> That's absolutely fascinating, though. You know, you're almost kind of living that history through these people that have been yeah. doing this movement for, for a certain period of time. Um, yeah, the thought of like, you know, you kind of blowing off the dust of these archives to go through. Them, that's kind of like my imagination running wild with me there. Um, yeah. But I think that's a really interesting take on on this research. It sounds like your journey has kind of been like looking at the history, kind of really understanding what's happened and then kind of, you know, seeing how it's moved online as well. So seeing how that movement has changed um but you know in the past you know yeah. decade or you know however long um that's so interesting mark it's absolutely fascinating um so my kind of next section is really about you know what's the the so what of this research and you know you've already touched on so many things that are going to have an impact as a result of your research um why do you do what you do why is this a particular interest uh, to you and you know, what do you hope for in the future? Uh, again, it's, a re- it's another really good question. I think to come back to my um, answer earlier on about, you know, my, my, I guess my journey and becoming inspired to think philosophically and sociologically about the, you know, why sport matters to people in terms of the meaning it has in their life. Well, obviously I'm interested in spectators uh, not just spectators of football, but in this case, spectators of football. And I guess, you know, I'm arguing here that fans should be able to experience that ritual of of watching sport um, in, in ways which aren't over-regulated or, or over-constrained. You know, I don't see why football fans, I mean, we know there are historical issues with with racism and, and on the terraces and um, and, and, you know, hooliganism and, and, and other, and other things. But, you know, football fans have been, you know, en masse treated or effectively criminalized over, over the last 40, 40, 50 years. And I think, you know, why should football fans be treated differently than fans of rugby or fans of cricket? So this really, in, the, in terms of the so what, it's about the safety of fans. You know, <laughs> it's really unsafe to go to a game. If you're, if you've not got much choice to stand up in an all seated space, but it's also about the democratic rights of football fans as well to, I guess, have that freedom to actively express support in ways which isn't over regulated or over constrained. Um, you know, as what, what, as we've seen through the COVID pandemic, you know, okay, sport's still here, but sport without fans really is nothing, is it? You know, it, it, it's, it's nothing in terms of, I guess the, in some cases, the financial, uh, structure and the financial impact of, of COVID on certainly on the lower, lower league, um, sports teams, but, but also in terms of the culture as well and the atmosphere. And I think that's why I do it. That's why I'm interested in it. And that's why, you know, I, I, I can see there being a, a legitimate case for, um, for, for policy change here. Um, now, football governance, I think, in England needs an urgent review. And I think fans should be a key part of that in terms of having a say in the fundamental 
restructure of the game. Um, and I think safe standing is, is part of that of that story, really. Yeah, that I completely agree, actually. And I hadn't really thought about, um, you know, football being kind of shoehorned into into one particular box, and it's that those types of fans that are going to cause problems, and it's almost like stereotyping within, you know, fan bases in sport. And I I really hadn't even looked at it that way. So I think. Um, it sounds so valuable what you're doing um, and really, really interesting. And I think that, you know, it does really sound like you're having a, a, an impact and that this could really change, you know, at the top level so we can see changes in government. I, mean, most, just, I was just going to say, I mean, obviously, football fans can be part of that reform. You know, the, the fans who were campaigning and were coming together uh, to campaign and, 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 you know, writing fans who were writing fanzines in the 80s and the 90s, they were anti-racism. Mm. They were they were anti hooliganism, but but the government just took this view that all football fans were a social problem, mm. and you know this is just one movement. There are others. There are more. There are more important movements uh, than you know fans standing up at a game. Someone's probably listening to this saying, "Well, if they don't really want to sit down, they don't have to go." You know, <laughs> so not the most. It's not the most important movement in football, but it's a movement which is characteristic of, as I said, wider social changes. You know, and, and I think that's hopefully what's coming through now in the in the published research, which is um, which is coming from the PhD. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, th- this is a podcast about you and your your research journey, and I think you've told it so beautifully. Um, so the final kind of point that I wanted to ask you about is. Uh, this idea of a golden nugget. So what is one piece of advice that you would give to anyone interested in research? And it doesn't have to be, you know, something about your particular research area. It could be, you know, anything um, about the research journey. Okay, this one, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um, This is, is, I'm going to give you my, this is my honest answer here right you know i would say take your time you know and, and we're, we're always constrained again by external you know context you know you, you you're writing that you've got funding to produce a piece of research and but try and take your time as much as possible to find especially for people maybe who are not as experienced with research or are really interested in getting into research a bit more try and find time and space um, to, I guess, embed the research you, you want to do in your life, which achieves a really healthy work-life balance. What I, what I found with, with, with myself was, you know, I, I run a lot. I do a lot of running. Um, I run six miles every morning. Um, I don't know, that might be more interesting than the piano playing. Um, but six, I, you six know, I, I, I think, I, you know, I, well, some people would say you need to switch off from, from work, you know, but what I find is, you know, when when I'm running, if I'm thinking about the research, but I'm thinking about it, it's a healthy thinking about it. You know, when I'm on when I'm on holiday, I might be Sunday and I might be reading. I, I might read something what I need to read for the research, but I'm doing it in a way again which feels, I guess, mentally safe, mentally secure, mentally healthy as well. So what I would do is I would if, piece of advice is if, throw yourself into it, make it a part of who you are in your life. Do, do that, live the research. But take your time and find the space to enjoy doing it, and you know, and 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 do the research when you're running, when you're cycling, 
when you're having a little holiday. Do it in terms of, you know, just a bit of reading. Um, and, and, and the other thing is, sorry, you won't ask for one, but let the data speak. Let the data tell the story of, of, of what it is, you know, what it is you're doing. Um, is is another thing as well. That's just that's just me. That's what I think. And I think that's really good advice because you know we all tend to get caught up in deadlines and reviewer feedback, or you know when's that due in, and you know you kind of do feel that time gets the better of you, and sometimes you do just have to sit and reflect, and and that's usually where the best work comes from is when you've actually really kind of thought about it and mulled over those ideas, and you know running. I mean, normally I'm thinking about how much I want to stop, um, but <laughs> you know, it is a really good way to to clear clear your head, and obviously it works really well for you for your research. Um, that's great, uh, Mark. We're just going to finish on a little bit of fun, uh, just to get to know you quite quickly. So we've already known got to know you over the, the series of this podcast. Um, so we're going to play a quick game of this or that. Basically, I'm going to say 10 questions. You basically have to choose one of the two options. Try not to think about it too much, uh, and it should be quite uh, quick and easy to do. Are you up for that? Yeah, sure. Okay, go here we go. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee first thing, tea for the rest of the day. <laughs> okay. Uh, call or quant? Qualitative, oh my word. Got to understand the nuances. Dog or cat? Um, don't tell my wife I said this. We've got two cats, but I'm a dog lover. <gasps> I won't tell her. Book or journal? Journal. Instagram or Twitter? Instagram, 100%. Agreed. Lit review or method? Well, my methodology apparently was the best part of my PhD, but I enjoy the lit review more. <laughs> Chocolate or sweets? Neither crisps. Oh, yeah. Uh, undergrad or postgrad? Undergraduate for the journey, postgraduate for the, I guess, the student experience. Winter or summer? Neither. Autumn. <laughs> You're so difficult. Uh, reading or writing? <sighs> writing. Very nice. And with that, I think that comes to the end of our very first Solent Sessions podcast. Um, did you enjoy yourself, Mark? I enjoyed it. It's, 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 it's difficult, as I said, because, you know, you, when you've been to academic conferences and you've presented work, it, you're probably a little bit more polished um, in terms of, you know, it, this is a bit more, I guess, authentic, really. It's a bit more, um, it's a bit raw, in a sense, because you're just, you're just talking, it's a conversation. I enjoyed it. Um, um, yeah, hopefully what I what I do has come across and it's not, it's not bored too many people. No, I think it's been absolutely fascinating and I think it starts a really nice podcast series that I hope that the rest of the faculty are going to enjoy as well. Um, so yeah. thanks yeah. so much, Mark. And uh, yeah, we will see you for the next one very soon. Yeah.